from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sails. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the CER podcast. My name is Sophia Besch and today I'm in conversation with Ian Bond and we're talking about a difficult relationship and that is the China-US-Europe triangle. How should we think of China? What options are there for Europe? What are the impacts of the COVID-19 crisis? Um, and Ian, perhaps as an introduction into the subject, where are we at and how did we get here? How did we get from an era of China, the responsible stakeholder, to where we are today? Well, we were probably too optimistic to think that China was going to become a responsible stakeholder in quite the way that we thought, uh, defending the same sort of post-Second World War institutional arrangements that had worked pretty well for the for the West, but Uh, which from a Chinese point of view didn't really accommodate China's rise. But I think what we've seen over the last 30 years or so is a, is a shift in priorities in a way. I mean, at the beginning, this was a sort of win-win-win relationship for the EU, the US and China. Uh, the EU and the US both um, wanted a source of low-cost manufactured goods and China could provide that. And China wanted investment and know-how, and the EU and the US could provide that. And the EU and the US pretty much worked together, not always, but on, on most issues to do with China, they worked together, you know, on questions such as um, uh, how to react to uh, Tiananmen Square and so on, for example. Um, now where we are is that over time, all three legs of the relationship have become more complicated. I mean, the first was the the US-China relationship. And the Americans became increasingly worried about China as a peer competitor, both economically and militarily. Um, and now, you know, you, I feel that some of that is exaggerated, that China is not as much of a peer competitor as some in the US um, claim. But there is a very strong perception, and it's a bipartisan perception, that China it poses an increasing threat to the, the primacy of the US in the world and the ability of the US to keep the peace in East Asia and the Pacific area particularly. So that was the first leg of the triangle uh, to come under strain. Uh, initially, I would say that the, the EU was much more relaxed and they saw the relationship with China primarily in economic terms and not so much in geopolitical or strategic terms. And, you know, they were content for the Americans to take the lead on some of the more strategic questions. But increasingly, Europe became concerned about trade issues, unfair trading practices, theft of intellectual property, forced technology transfer, cyber attacks, uh, and about China's human rights record. Uh, and all of those things put the EU-China relationship under strain. I think that would have been manageable if the EU and US were still able to work together 
to exert their influence on, on China. Uh, the problem really came when the Trump administration came to power and started to view the EU as being, as Trump himself said, almost as bad as China. Uh, and you know, my sense from past trips to Washington in the last couple of years is that although there are certainly some people in the US administration who would like to see the US and the EU lined up together, pushing back against some of China's unacceptable trading practices and the like, there are also some people in the US administration and particularly in the White House who think that the the price for the um, for US support for the EU in disputes that is, it has with China ought to be that the EU gives ground on trade disputes that it has with the, the US and spends more on defense and so on. Uh, and so I think now we're, we're in a situation where China sees an opportunity to drive a wedge between Europeans and Americans, and it's, it's exploiting that quite well. All right, that's a pretty bleak uh, picture to start us off with. I think, I mean, the question that is certainly on my mind at the moment is how are these dynamics playing out in the COVID-19 uh, global pandemic crisis that we're currently living through? How is this um, demonstrating perhaps some of the uh, dynamics that you've just described? How is it affecting the relationships between the three players? Well, the, the, this has been, for somebody who is a convinced transatlanticist, a pretty depressing period uh, because Trump's response to the COVID-19 crisis was to impose a travel ban on Europeans without consultation or even warning to the countries concerned, um, to try to get exclusive rights to a, a vaccine um, uh, well, any vaccine that might be developed by a German company that was working on that um, to the exclusion of, of uh, Europe. Um, and most recently, um, to apparently seize um, protective equipment en route from China to Europe while it was in transit through Bangkok and stick it on flights to the United States instead, described by one German politician as modern day piracy. So, you know, Trump has put the EU-US relationship under even greater strain than it was before. Meanwhile, um, the Chinese have been supplying COVID-19 test kits and ventilators and protective equipment to Europe and sending teams of doctors to Italy and other countries. Now, you know, a lot of this is propaganda. Uh, it was China's um, and the Chinese Communist Party's unwillingness to come clean at the very beginning of the uh, epidemic in Wuhan that, that helped to spread this disease around the globe. But since then, the Chinese have, I think, been trying to up their game both domestically and externally, and they are doing a pretty good job of spreading the narrative that they're the people that you need to cooperate with if you want to deal with the pandemic while as the, while the US is dealing with it ineffectively and is breaking international ties not cooperating even with its own allies and partners yeah yeah but covid-19 of course is only a small part of the the puzzle at the moment and one has to say that not all of the 
uh, language that comes out of China is is quite so um, uh, positive in the sense of international cooperation. And uh, I've been very struck, and I think you have too, by some of the things that Xi Jinping has said in recent years about uh, China's posture on the world stage, and in particular its military position. And I wondered whether I might ask you in particular about what Xi Jinping said about China's ambition to be able to win global wars by 2049. How seriously do you think we should take that? And do you see uh, China's military um, budgets and its military construction program uh, matching up to that ambition? Yeah, um, I think that's that's an important question. And the first metric that we might look at in trying to answer this question is Chinese defense spending, which has gone up significantly over the last 10 years. Um, China is now at least, I mean, there's always some secrecy here, but according to most estimates, China is now the second largest uh, defense spender in the world behind the United States. But, you know, the question is, what does that actually tell us? We know that defense spending is not always the most reliable metric in actually measuring um, the prowess and the power of a military power. So I'd say that there are three elements that we need to look at when we try to examine China's posture as a defense power. The first one is the race over emerging defense technologies and China's investment in its defense and technological industrial base. Um, Beijing is investing in precision-guided munitions, electronic warfare capabilities, anti-satellite capabilities, is developing hypersonic missiles, um, and Beijing has declared its ambition to become a world leader and close the technological gap with the West, um, mostly the United States and areas like AI, unmanned systems, robotics, cyber defense, those are all dual use technologies that have potentially both a civilian and a military use. And to achieve this, Beijing has been investing heavily in startups, in um, research and development, releasing declassified patents, supporting private companies entering China's defense industry. It's also been accused, and you um, alluded to this earlier, of stealing designs and other intellectual property from Russia, from the US, from Europe. The second element in this, uh, I think, are Chinese arms exports. So China has become the world's second largest arms producer, um, ahead of Russia, second again only to the US. And when we look at where these exports are actually going, most of them are going to developing countries. Uh, China has, for example, been pretty successful exporting armed drones. Um, these platforms, when you compare them to the US, are not always um, as capable at what the US might be producing and exporting, but China often sells them without conditions on their use. Um, for less money uh, and to countries for which the US or European suppliers have restricted uh, their exports. So um, that's sold drones to Saudi Arabia, um, Nigeria and Iraq. Um, now, what I found really interesting is the studies that have shown that the focus for Chinese arms sales appears to be on economic opportunity rather than on exports as an instrument of foreign policy. So, for example, um, we could have expected China to sell more arms to the countries that are part of its Belt and Road initiatives, um, but that hasn't actually been the case. On the other hand, China's export 
uh, of emerging defense or dual-use technology is, I think, a cause for concern. Um, Beijing has sold surveillance technologies to authoritarian governments. And by exporting this emerging technology, the Chinese government is also exporting the, its own norms and, and standards around the world. So I think that might be an interesting aspect of Chinese exports uh, and arms exports. And then the third and final element, I think, in the assessment of China as a defense power is China's military presence. Um, so on the one hand, we can see that China has considerably increased its participation in UN peacekeeping operations. Um, it's the 10th biggest troop supplier today, the second largest funder of the UN's overall peacekeeping budget. It's also modernizing its armed forces, and in particular the Chinese Navy. Um, China now has the world's largest naval force in terms of ship numbers. Um, it's opened its first overseas military base in Djibouti, um, strategically located on the Gulf of Aden to support operations in Africa. And something that uh, we often talk about, it has gradually expanded its maritime presence in the South and East China Seas over the last years. It's built up these you know, artificial islands, constructing military outposts, runways, deploying anti-ship uh, and anti-aircraft missile systems to support its own territorial claims in these seas. And there are other regions where some fear that China is preparing for a military buildup. So um, as part of its Belt and Road Initiative, China is developing Arctic shipping routes. It's uh, building what Beijing calls the Polar Silk Road. Um, it's investing in Arctic research, infrastructure, real estate. It does not uh, currently have territorial claims or a permanent uh, Arctic military presence. But the U.S. certainly is concerned that China's civilian efforts in the Arctic could eventually turn into a strengthened Chinese military presence there, potentially including the deployment of submarines. Well, that raises some quite interesting questions. I mean, uh, obviously, Europe has quite a lot of interest in uh, freedom of navigation as a general principle. Um, so, you know, one one approach might be for the EU to be more active in defending freedom of navigation in the um, in the South China Sea. Um, it has some democratic allies in the um, in the region, including Japan. Uh, maybe it should be doing more with them. But that mention of the of the Arctic makes me wonder, you know, should the EU actually be focusing closer to home? And um, I, you know, I wonder how you how you see the EU's uh, defense and security priorities when it comes to what the Chinese are doing. What you know, what what should the EU be doing to make sure that it is uh, protected against Chinese activity that it finds threatening? Yeah. Um, well, when I talk about this, I think I'll be talking about both the EU and NATO as sort of the more prominent um, military organization for Europe. But I think, in a way, the answer is it depends. <laughs> we need to look at it issue by issue. What matters, I think, is in the first instance that Europe is clear about its own interests, uh, about its own vulnerabilities and its capabilities and necessarily its priorities. Um, take the Arctic, for example. So. The U.S. considers the Arctic a potential avenue for great power competition and aggression. Um, now, five of the eight Arctic states are NATO members, but the international community has for a really long time been engaged in an effort to prevent a militarization of the region. 
Um, they focused on, on trade and science, the climate change as the main security threat. And another European and NATO interest is also to prevent Russia from increasing its own military presence in the region. So you could make the argument here that the objective for Europeans in the Arctic should be to manage competition, try to decrease uh, escalatory potential. And so far, the U.S. pressure to change Europe's perspective on the Arctic has not exactly been greeted with, with much enthusiasm by European allies, not least, I think, because the U.S. is refusing to discuss the Arctic's climate challenges, certainly under the Trump uh, government. But on the other hand, when we look at the South China Sea, and you, you said it, Ian, China's assertion of territorial claims there poses a real threat to the rules-based global order, which the EU and Europeans aim to defend. And it's also in Europe's economic interest to protect free and safe shipping through these seas. Um, Europeans are involved in the region with diplomatic efforts. European military involvement has been limited. Um, I mean, France and the UK have both conducted freedom of navigation operations and exercises. And I'd say that's a, a justified course of action. but. There aren't many other countries in Europe that have the capability and the political will to deploy there. And NATO as an alliance is also not really discussing deployment in the region. That doesn't mean that there's nothing for Europe to do. Uh, I think the argument that NATO should upgrade its cooperation with partners in the South and East China Seas through more joint exercises, through um, more intelligence sharing, definitely has value. NATO is good at these kind of partnerships um, that's what we're doing with the, with the Nordic countries in Europe as well, who are not members of NATO. Um, but I would always argue that with a view to burden sharing, Europeans might have to prioritize investing in the defense of their own neighborhood uh, and free the U.S. up for operations in the Pacific. Uh, I think NATO's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has summed this up uh, pretty well. He said that it's it's not about NATO moving in the South China Sea, but it's about taking into account the fact that China is coming closer to us. And I think that's very sensible and it implies sort of clear priorities for Europe, one of them being to support investment in the protection of critical infrastructure, the protection of energy security, the protection of our IT networks, um, but also to see what are actually the impacts of uh, European policy there to get better and more coordinated uh, export controls over dual technology, European dual-use technology that might be going to China. So perhaps that's less straightforward a response than sending ships and troops, but I think uh, it's absolutely a priority. Sort of yeah. moving on from, from defense, uh, perhaps you've been working on, on this subject for, for a while now, and this is the dreaded question I know, but if I ask you to sum up uh, your research and just look at what the EU's priorities should be uh, in general <laughs> in its policy towards the US, in its policy towards China. How should we locate ourselves in this triangle? Yeah, well, I, th I think probably the most important point is that um, whether we're talking about trade conflicts or military confrontations, um, the more tension there is between China and the US, the worse it is for Europe and European interests, whether that's in an EU context or a NATO context. And I think Europeans have to give much more thought to how you try to manage down tensions between China and the US. Uh, and that might be in the context of the COVID-19 crisis by looking for areas where actually there are common interests. 
I mean, it's very dangerous that the uh, the, the narrative that's developing in the US to some extent in Europe as well is about blaming China, you know, taking legal action against China for failing to crack down on uh, on the epidemic earlier or for failing to be transparent about the spread of uh, COVID-19 at the at the outset. I think there will be a time for asking some questions about whether this could have been handled better. But the priority at the moment should be on uh, the scientists of all countries getting together to work on finding vaccines and uh, antiviral drugs and the like, and uh, ensuring the free flow of protective equipment from where it's manufactured. And that's not always China, but it's quite often China to where it's most needed. So it seems to me that building down tension, de-escalating is, is a crucial overarching priority for the EU. I think the second thing I would say is that um, the EU has to work on preventing deglobalization. Again, there are voices in the US which are saying what the COVID-19 pandemic shows is that we need to renationalize um, production, not in the sense of public ownership, but in terms of bringing production of all crucial items back to the US and getting out of global supply chains. I think that would be very bad news, both economically and politically, but also potentially if there were to be another pandemic at some point in the in the future. And what we have discovered is that if you have supply chains that have single points of failure, that's quite dangerous. But that argues not for having your single point of failure in, you know, Cleveland rather than Wuhan. Uh, it's an argument for having more diversified supply chains and more sources of all of the crucial items that you need. And I think uh, that that's quite difficult from the point of view of individual companies. Uh, they will not want to invest in redundancy in production. But from the perspective of um, the community as a whole, it's very important that you don't end up depending on one factory in one town to um, to be able to produce something that you absolutely can't live without. So I think fighting deglobalization is really important. I think the last thing that I would say on this is the EU also needs to work on the promotion of values and institutions. Uh, in the past, the EU and the US were usually on the same side in taking a firm line on human rights and political freedoms and the like. The Trump administration has pretty much given up talking about those issues, even in relation to China. Uh, with, there are a few exceptions, but really, you know, this has gone way down the priority list. And I think for the EU, these values are quite fundamental to its identity, uh, both externally and internally. Uh, and it has to work out whether it is going to push back more effectively against the model of technology enabled authoritarianism. I mean, you, you talked a bit about the, uh, the, the export of security and military technology to authoritarian countries elsewhere in the world. And I think that's something that the EU needs to take seriously. Uh, for a very long time, 
the model of how you transformed a country was through democracy and civil rights and economic and political freedoms. And China is now saying, well, you know, there's another model which involves snooping on every member of your society and if they step out of line, hitting them hard. And I think it's important for the EU to take a take a pretty forward-leaning approach to promoting its values, making sure that it lives up to them internally, but also making sure that it carries on promoting them externally and that it works with other like-minded countries such as Japan and South Korea um, to, to make sure that international institutions, whether that's the WTO or uh, the International Telecommunications Union or whatever, that those institutions work effectively and in our interests and are not captured by China or indeed any other authoritarian power. But I think the main thing for the EU at the moment is to try to make sure that the tensions that have developed in that triangular relationship are reduced as far as they can be. I think you're absolutely right. Um, but I think this is so interesting and it's really fun to talk to you about. Uh, you can also look forward to a long read by the CR about this, these exact questions that will be on the CR website in due time. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.